So many of the things we've been singing today, Lord, are just right lifted from your word. Things that in some ways we so appreciate but can't fully grasp that you are the holy God. We've never come across anything apart from you that's absolutely pure. With pure motives. With our best interests in mind. Thank you so much. We've sung earlier about the fact that you are the God who was, the God who is, the God who is to come, the eternal God. We're going to be talking about these things, Lord, as we look in your word, as we talk about worship. We pray that you are blessed today, that you are exalted, that you are lifted up. We're so grateful for how you're revealed to us, your nature and your character. And as we look now into your word, one more time, we invite you to fill us as we just were singing with your spirit. Help us to understand it. Help us to make it deeply and and allow it to penetrate us in a life-giving and changing way. And we invite these things in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. And so this fall we've been focusing on and we've been wearing the t-shirts, all of us, about belonging, about engaging, about being in community together, caring for one another and serving out of that. And to highlight this and emphasize these ideas, we've been spending this time, these eight weeks, and today is the last day, on the story of Peter walking on water in response to Jesus meeting them in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And we've we've entitled this series, Life Without Water Wings, and we have the water wings up here on the platform beside me. And we've said, God has invited us and is inviting us to come out of the boat, to take off the water wings. And we talked about a number of reasons for that. Let me just remind you of a couple of them, that that's really the only place where real growth and faith develops. We don't want to look back later in life with regret saying, what could have been? And we talked about a number of reasons, but the one that that is over all of those and is greater than the sum of all of those put together is the fact that the water is where Jesus is. And when we do this and, and respond to Jesus saying, come, rather than the evil one saying, jump, which we contrasted one time in this series, there's something quite wonderful that God begins to do in our life. And so one more time, we're going to read this text. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 14. There's great value in reading scripture over and over again, because of course you can never begin to plumb the depths of it. And so each time we invite the spirit of God to speak to us, as we look into his word, Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. And as I read it, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. 
But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And so Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? But when he climbed into the boat, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. It says when they got into the boat, and this is where we're going to be focusing today in verse 33. It said the whole bunch of them worshiped him. And then they made this very declarative statement. Truly, you are the son of God. We're going to talk about the idea of worship and declaring the fact and the truth of who God is and what he's done. And I invite you to join me with us. You know, parents with their little children, and I think we did this with our kids when they were little, would often play and they'll often play a game with them to help the children understand this idea that they're going to grow, that they're going to get bigger. And so they'll say things like this to the children, how big are you? And almost inevitably, the children will say, I am so big. And they will spread their hands like this. And they'll make themselves look bigger. I'm huge. I'm enormous. And I'm growing. Now, this approach doesn't work for every area of life. Because if your spouse or your girlfriend says, how big do my hips look to you? It's not good to go, they're so huge. How big, how big is your God? You know, scripture teaches us that he is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of lords, that he is the eternal one, which I believe is the most powerful argument for the existence of God. The eternal something, the one who is uncreated, the one from which everything comes, the powerful, creative creator, the one it says in Ephesians one who sustains the entire universe as well, that the next breath we take comes from him, that he is bigger than we could ever begin to comprehend. And yet right in the opening pages of Genesis, and I think this is something we're very much involved with as well. We try to, like they did in Genesis chapter three, we try to limit him. We try to limit his work in our life and have a containable God. How big is Christ in your life? And so it's about 3 a.m. or so. They're in the boat There's a wild storm such that the professional fishermen among them are nervous. They see Jesus approaching them, walking on water, and they are afraid. 
And it says in verse 27, take courage, Jesus says. And then at the end of the sentence, he says, don't be afraid. And then he makes a very poignant statement right in the middle of that sentence. He says, it is I. Now, Matthew very deliberately chose the words that he recorded in verse 27 because he uses the Greek version there that points us to the mysterious self-revealing name of God. I am who I am. Jesus says, take courage, don't be afraid because I am who I am. This is no ordinary, hello, how are you doing kind of statement. This is the God of the universe saying, you don't have to be afraid. I am the creator. I am the sustainer of all that there is. And I am here. And when God first uses this self-revelatory name in Exodus chapter three, he is saying to Moses, he is saying to us, he's saying to the disciples here in chapter 14, this is an expression of my essence. This is an expression of my self-existence. The fact that I am uncreated, that I am eternal, that I am all-powerful, that I am significant, that I have character that is pure and holy, that I have authority over everything. The words I am communicate all that God is and all that God does. Now... That's pretty tough for us to take in. And for the most part, many of us have never perhaps really tried to grapple with this. We haven't really opened ourselves up to this idea. They pushed back against it in Genesis 3. When the evil one tempted them, you know, do you really want God to be in charge of your life? And as a result of that, we only receive a small portion of who God really is. Not the fully competent, all-knowing, ever-present God. So what happens in our life when we try to do life with a small God that we can actually comprehend? Well, I would argue that like the disciples, we are afraid in life. We are vulnerable in life. Because things depend on us. And that's not a good thing to depend on rather than on him. We get a chance to share our faith with someone and we avoid it. Because what if I'm rejected? What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Because when it depends on me, that makes us nervous. We tend not to be generous Because my security depends on what I have in the bank. There's nothing wrong with saving money and having money in the bank. But when my security is based on that, rather than entrusting in the God who owns the cattle, scripture says, on a thousand hills. We may try to get credit for things we didn't really do because we're not really trusting in the big God of the Bible who sees the scripture says what is done in secret and will reward us. John Ortberg, one of my favorite quotes from Ortberg, listen to this. It's on the screen behind me. When human beings shrink God, they offer prayer without faith, work without passion, service without joy, and suffering without 
hope. And so if your relationship with God is kind of lame, maybe this is why. When we try to shrink God down to something that we can comprehend, we shrink him and our prayer goes out without faith. We work in sort of a haphazard, passionless manner. We serve without joy. We suffer without biblical hope. And this is what happens to the 11 boys sitting in the boat. We said early in this series that the 11 disciples that stayed in the boat were boat potatoes. We often call them couch potatoes, but in this instance, they're boat potatoes. And because of Christ, the great I am, if you've bowed the knee to Jesus, the great I am is living in us and he is greater than all those things. And yet does my life reflect that? So how do we live in a way that reflects the fact that we are a chosen child of the King of Kings, the God who is so big. We use a word and we've been singing it a number of times today. It's a concept to try and perceive and declare the vastness, the worthiness, the strength of God. And it's the word worship. And we see it in verse 33. It says that everybody in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. They make this declarative statement. They affirm it out loud. The word worship, the etymology of it, it comes from an old English, two old English words, worthship. It means to ascribe worthship. Tozer, famous author, dead in 1963, but in the 1950s, he said, and this is interesting because it's gone, so, it's gone so far downhill in the last 70 years since then, but he observed in the 50s that, that worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. This is so much more the case now than it was then. Have you ever wondered why God insists in being worshiped because it's everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. Like I said, it gets, it's the, it's the foundational attack of the evil one in chapter three. You don't want to worship him. You don't want to have to bow the knee to him. You want to be your own God. Why does it say in scripture repeatedly over and over again to worship him? Why is that? Doesn't God already know how great he is? Well, the fact is who he is and whether we acknowledge that or not is actually completely irrelevant because it's absolutely true. What's true is true and it's evidently true. So whether we acknowledge it or not doesn't make it any less true. Worship is not about stroking God's ego. This is how we try to formulate it in our limited mind. He doesn't have an ego like we do, and he doesn't have any unmet needs. And so God created us so when we experience something great, something that's clearly beyond our capacity to fully comprehend, something that's transcendent, we have a need to praise it. We have to, a need to try and wrap words and actions around praising him. On a simpler level, 
When we see something admirable, and again, this is, I think, something God put in us. When we see something admirable in another person, we want to call attention to that in a positive way. It releases oxytocins in our, in our body. When we do that, it makes us feel good. We were made to worship God because without worship, we have an incomplete experience. We have a lacking sense of enjoyment of God. We need to worship. He doesn't need us to worship him. So why do I need to worship? Why is it the disciples instinctively knew to do this when they saw what he did in verse 33? Without worship, I tend to forget about the big God, the God of the Bible, the living Christ living in me by his spirit. And I forget that and I tend to live a small life a life of fear where I don't get out of the boat. If I don't worship, I forget that he's in charge. I forget that he has an eternal purpose for me. And I become preoccupied in a self-centered way with myself and what I want. If I don't worship, I tend to just kind of cruise through life with blinders on and lose the sense of gratitude and wonder for all that God has done for me. If I don't worship and I need to worship because it reminds me what I should depend on because my natural tendency is to be stubborn and I try to be independent. It's no accident that this story ends this way. And so Peter walks on water. The disciples have got their mouths hanging open. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He looks at the storm. He sees the wind. It says he feels the waves kicking up around him. He starts to sink. Jesus rescues him. They climb into the boat. The storm ceases. ceases, And everyone in the boat says, truly, you are the son of God. And they worship him. They affirm and they declare this truth. And there's this pattern that we see, and there's often patterns in Scripture. The pattern, this pattern in Scripture, God reveals himself. We reflect on what God has done. We worship him in response to that. And our understanding, our appreciation of God grows. So when we worship, we're invited to stop and reflect. We're going to be doing that in just a few minutes as we share communion together. We stop in worship and we reflect. We reflect on the God who is, the God who has done what he's done. And I take off these self-centered blinders that I often want to put on. And I notice, I notice. And the more I worship, the more I notice. And the more I notice, the more I worship. So when we pause to reflect, we see Theophanies, theophanies, which are a tangible, visible expression of who God is and what God does. What kind of a God has the imagination that can create all the different peoples of the world, all the different languages, all the different personalities, all the different cultures, the different customs, 
the kind of God that can give us a human body that's so complex and works so wonderfully that it just in an involuntary manner, it knows to open its lungs and suck in oxygen and process it to feed the body. What kind of a God creates a universe and creates the galaxies, creates the stars, creates the planets, that creates our world that has all the raw materials seeded into it to sustain all of the people, the billions and billions of people, all of the plants, all of the animals. This is why it says in scripture that the creation shouts out, it screams out to anybody that'll bother to listen that he is there, that he is self-existent, that he is uncreated, that he is powerful, that he is creative, that he likes to give good things to his children, that there's an exquisite mind behind all of this. You know, for those that think everything just came from absolutely nothing, because that's what you have to believe if you don't believe in God. You have to believe nothing is self-existent. Think how contradictory that is. I don't have the faith to believe nothing plus chance created all this. I'm a person of faith, but I don't have nearly enough faith to believe that. I would say at the heart of that is it goes back to Genesis 3. They come up with this elaborate fabrication so they don't have to bow the knee to the God that created them. Then we read his word and we hear the story that we have heard so often that God came down. We often think about us going to heaven. Really the heart of the biblical story is that God, rather than that, it's about the God who came down and lived life and died on the cross for us. And literally you can spend a lifetime reflecting on that and never plumb the depths. And if you think you've plumbed the depths of that, you have not even begun. Because the more you do it, the more you worship. And the more you notice, the more you worship. And so we reflect. And we will do that at the communion table. But then reflection leads to a response. To respond in worship is not to just to come to a worship service regularly, which we see pictured all through the Bible. And as you often hear me say, even with all our faults, there is no plan B in the economy of God. There just isn't. And so we're called to worship together corporately in church and in community, but we're also invited privately and in small groups to reflect and respond in worship to the God of the Bible. Wherever we are in life, wherever we're at work or at home or wherever we are, these guys happen to be out in a boat. And it says they worshiped him and they declared, truly, you are the son of God. Now, some people say, and probably I've been among those at points in my life that they're bored as they try to worship. Can I suggest that the heart of that is a person who spends too much time in the boat? Too much time with their water wings on. 
too much time ignoring or rebelling against, against God's invitation to come. Because when we take off the water wings and we get out, we respond in worship. As God reveals himself, we respond in genuine worship. Tied to this is the idea of fearing God, which I talk about from time to time. The Bible says the fear of the God of the Lord is the beginning of worship and wisdom. And I've spent some time with people in the Eastern Church. I'm not talking about Ontario or Nova Scotia. I'm talking about the Eastern Church on the other side of the world. And one of their observations about the church in North America is that we generally seem to have a lack of reverence for him. And I think there's some truth in what they're saying. We tend to settle for images of God that make us feel comfortable. And he becomes small in our mind. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It doesn't mean to be huddled in the corner, quivering with fear, afraid that he's about to smack us with a big yardstick. The fear of the Lord involves reverence and awe, a healthy recognition of who God is, that we are special. We are the Imago Dei, Genesis chapter 1. It says in verse 26, then God in the singular said, let us, which is to the plural, the first Trinitarian example in scripture. Then God in the singular said, let us make man in our image. We are special in the creation, special in the creation. And yet compared to holy God, we're fallen people. Fallen people who are cleansed because of Christ, forgiven because Jesus made all the arrangements because Jesus as the perfect lamb of God made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And worship reminds us that one day our fallenness will be completely healed. That the sin, the guilt, the death that we all grapple with will be finished completely and defeated. Showing reverence and awe for God as we reflect and respond to those things. The more we do it, the more we worship. And the more we worship, the more we notice. And so in worship, I'm invited to use every tool available. My memory, my imagination, scripture, pictures, prayers, singing, my obedience, what I give, how I offer myself to God, how I serve others in community and care for them. All of those things and more can become and are, have the potential to be acts of worship. And they take place in a public service like this, or as a family, or as an individual, as you're at work or wherever you're at. And what I'm doing in worship is I'm saying, God, you are absolutely real, but you're, in reality, you're more than I can see and touch. It's the magnification of God, who is spirit and truth, it says in John 4. And one of the Greek words for worship starts with the prefix mega, which means large or great. In worship, we magnify the mega God. And this is why the story of Peter walking on water must end in worship. And I'm, you know, I'm just 
using my imagination here, but I can almost imagine Peter, after the storm stops, jumping back out of the boat onto the water and yelling at the top of his lungs, Jesus is so big. And all the disciples going so big. And when we take off the water wings and get out of boat, because Jesus has said, come, whether that call is how we do community, how we love one another, pray for one another, there for one another, how we serve, how we share, how we give, how we trust. We've heard his call. We obey. Our God is bigger to us and our worship of him will be deeper and richer and stronger. And I say it again, the more we do it, the more we notice, the more we worship, and the more we worship, the more we notice. Because the water is where Jesus is.